there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. This talk is about sovereignty. Now, we've talked about sacrament, and I trust you you know what the definition of that is. Evelyn Underhill adds this piece of wisdom. Events are the sacraments of the will of God. Now, I know that Oklahoma City is not a place where very many people would ever manage, manage to believe that at present, but they are visible signs of the invisible realities, and I am going to give you some scriptures for this. I'm not making this up. But first of all, I want to give you a very wise statement from Francis de Sales, who wrote a magnificent little book called Introduction to the Devout Life, and I've learned many things from him. And this one is so important in my own life that I keep it in the back of my notebook and I review it again and again. Strive to see God in all things without exception. I'm not going to be able to read this slowly enough so that you can take it all down, but if you want to make yourself a few notes, of course, it will be on the tape. But strive to see God in all things without exception and acquiesce in his will with absolute submission. Do everything for God, uniting yourself to him by a mere upward glance or by the overflowing of your heart toward him. Never be in a hurry. Do everything quietly and in a calm spirit. Do not lose your inward peace for anything whatsoever, even if your whole world seems upset. Whatever happens, abide steadfast in a determination to cling simply to God, trusting to his eternal love for you. And if you find that you have wandered forth from this shelter, recall your heart quietly and simply. Maintain a holy simplicity of mind and do not smother yourself with a host of cares, wishes, or longings under any pretext. Now, we could just go home after this because he has said everything succinctly and perfectly. And what else can I say? Well, I guess everything that I have been saying and everything that I will say would fit under these headings. But that is the secret of a quiet heart. Striving to see God in all things without exception. Events are the sacraments of the will of God. An absolutely unshakable conviction that the Lord of the armies of heaven is in charge and nothing happens without his permission. you believe that? Absolutely nothing can happen without his permission. Nothing. So a definition now of sovereignty. God is sovereign, which means supreme in power, superior in position to all others, 
independent of and unlimited by any other. Supreme in power, superior in position to all others, independent of and unlimited by any other. God gave to Adam dominion, which is sovereign power over all lesser creatures. So there's a kind of sovereignty which is limited, of course. God's is unlimited. But God confers power on us, dominion, sovereign power. And there's a sense in which mothers and fathers are assigned sovereign power over their children. It is your responsibility. You are answerable to God for the way in which you have brought up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so Adam, by being given this sovereign power, became responsible for all lesser creatures. Let's look at a scriptural illustration in Acts 4, verses 23 to 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And this is a a very important model prayer for us to study as to how we should pray. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This is an extremely important verse that supports this understanding of sovereignty. They were wicked men, were they not? Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, they conspired against Jesus. And in verse 28, they did what was your, what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, And they don't say next, please make them quit acting like this. (laughs) Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They're only asking that the Lord will give them the strength to continue to obey. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. That title that they give him, Sovereign Lord, is the recognition that he is ruler of men as well as of wind and waves and axes that float and the sun when it stands still and every event in our lives. It is totally under the sovereign control of a God who is both, who is wise and powerful and let us never forget loving. And we can't see the love very often. Here are some other supporting scriptures. 
Ephesians 1.11 says his design, whose purpose is everywhere at work. 2 Corinthians 5.5, our mortal part will be absorbed into life immortal. God himself has shaped us for this very end. God knows exactly what the end is going to be for each one of us, and God is in the process of shaping us. So these events become for us the sacraments of the will of God, because no event has ever taken place in my life which was not meant for the shaping of Elizabeth Elliot into the image of Christ. Romans 8.28, you all know by heart. And the purpose, which is in Romans 8.29, is that we might be shaped to the image of his Son. He makes all things work together for good. And his purpose, this good purpose, is the shaping of us sinful, fallible mortals. Psalm 119.91, all things serve thee. There is no exception. Psalm 40, verse 5, thy wonderful purposes are all for our good. Now, can you imagine the story of Noah without the ark? Can you imagine the story of Daniel without the lion's den? Can you imagine the story of David without the Goliath story? These were disasters, wickedness, but think of the instruction for millions and millions of Christians through what they had to endure. Now, of course, Daniel did not know that he was not going to be eaten by the lions. He didn't change a thing when he was when he knew that he would be betrayed for praying as he did three times a day. And he continued in faithful, humble obedience, doing what he knew God wanted him to do. Let it cost whatever it costs. There had to be a flood that destroyed the whole earth in order for us to have the story of Noah. And you can go through the whole Bible and find that all sorts of terrible things happened to people. And all sorts of wickedness was perpetrated against the people of God. And God allowed it to happen. And I once wrote a novel called No Graven Image, my one and only novel, but it was, it was an attempt to embody in fictional form what I had, what I had sought to embody in my nonfiction books. My hope was that it would reach a more secular audience. It didn't. And it didn't reach very many in the Christian audience either because most people, most of the people that read it seemed to think that it was very bad to have such awful things happen because God doesn't let things like that happen. I mean, I got lots of letters from people, and I just thought if I could have sat down with them and said, do you think that this thing could not possibly happen, that God wouldn't allow anything this bad? If they said, yes, that's what I think, then I would say, well, I don't have anything else to say to you. But if, on the other hand, they believed that, yes, God might conceivably allow something that bad, and I can think of a whole other things far, far worse than what was in that story, Yes, he might. If they said that, then I would say, so what does the light of your Christian faith reveal when you bring it to bear on this event? If we believe that sacraments are the will of God, that the will of events are the sacraments of the will of God, then we have to bring to bear on anything that happens the light of our Christian faith. Now, I want to caution you that we ought not, and of course we cannot, figure out what good God is going to try to bring out of this. God gives us glimpses every now and then of some of the good things that he brings out of it. 
and um, I don't know if I told this. Did I tell the story yesterday about the three reporters from Boston that went came to Oklahoma City? Well, there's just one tiny crack, you know, that God gives us a glimpse that that was one of His purposes. He's got un- unimaginably broad things going on. So, for us to try to dissect and unpack and figure out and completely explain Almighty God is, of course, a piece of arrogance on our point. Our part. Who do we think we are? And to quote Evelyn Underhill again, she says, if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. The bombing happened with God's permission. Um, if you're trying to follow points here, number one is the definition. Number two, the scriptural illustrations that I gave you from Acts and all the rest of them. Number three, God's permission. Now note that in the verses that I've given you, it's not all mystery, but God does reveal himself, as we have said, not only by his word, but by his works, whether they are done solely by his hand or by the hand of man. God reveals himself in all these beautiful works that we see. Uh, The world is charged with the grandeur of God. He reveals himself in his punishments sometimes. He reveals himself in all kinds of ways, both by his word and by his works. He reveals himself whether the act or the event is caused solely by his hand or by the hand of man, good or evil. And Acts 2.23 throws some light on this one. This man, speaking of Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You can spend a lot of time pondering on that one. This happened. This is the worst thing that ever happened in human history. But what did God do with it? Transfigured it into the best thing that ever happened our salvation but it was by the hands of wicked men so we learn through what happens to us sacraments of his will when those reporters came to Oklahoma City what they saw was the witness of people who had a serenity and an answer and peace that they could not imagine anyone having considering the things which had taken place. But, you know, we don't have to go through the five stages of grief. Just because Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came up with five stages of grief doesn't mean that we are obligated to make sure that we check them off one after the other. It really, it is kind of amusing, but people have asked me many times, uh, how did you go through those five stages of grief? I said, I didn't know I was supposed to because nobody, Elizabeth, Elli- Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had not heard about, I mean, she had not written them at that time. This was subsequent to my loss of my first husband, so you don't necessarily need to. Now, I, I don't mean to be flippant in, an, in any way about this because grief is grief, and I am not denying it by any means. Uh, there's nothing wrong with grieving. 
it's self-pity that is the real quagmire that we're very likely to fall into. Jesus wept. Jesus did not feel sorry for himself. Jesus agonized in the garden over his approaching death. But I don't think that we need to work through five stages. I think that there is a shortcut to peace, which is acceptance. And we're going to come to that in another talk. But everything means everything. Nothing is meaningless. Nothing is for nothing. Everything is designed, assigned, apportioned, allotted, ordained, and or permitted for our learning. I pray, teach me to maintain a perpetual contentment under thy allotments. Let's look at Jeremiah 23, 15 to 18. This is what the Lord Almighty says concerning the prophets. I will make them eat bitter food and drink poisoned water because from the prophets of Jerusalem ungodliness has spread throughout the land. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? That's the great question that we need to ask of any counselor, professional or non-professional. Is this someone who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and heard his word? And that takes solitude, and silence, and obedience. You and I need to stand in the counsel of the Lord. Now, our personal history is full of obstacles to achievement, hindrances, and frustrations of our real purpose sometimes in great and very obvious ways and other times in very small ways, most of which we've probably forgotten. I was just telling someone in the break that I had brought along my diary from 1956 and 57 to read on the plane because I have 55 years' worth of journals and I have never gone back and read over them. Occasionally I've thumbed through something to find a particular thing, but... That was the most crucial year in the fact that Jim died in 56, and it was in 57 that I made the contact with the Alka people. And it was humiliating to me to realize how little I, I was aware of the incredible ways in which God had led me in those very, very difficult years. And it was just another... Uh, it was an occasion for tremendous thanksgiving and, and, and recognition from this long viewpoint, distant viewpoint of this sovereignty of God and how he worked things out that I could never have imagined and never have suggested in my prayers. You know, we often suggest to God certain ways in which he might answer the prayers and he usually has something far bigger and far different. But all of these obstacles to our to achievements, our hindrances, the frustrations of our purposes, 
They are help and preparation for God's work in each one of us. His work, which is that we might become to the praise of his glory, broken bread and poured out wine. Glenda's book has gone into Dutch, and I believe that there's a possibility that it's going to be translated into some other languages. Hundreds, thousands of people will be encouraged and blessed by the fact that she had to go through the deep water and the dark valley and the hot fire. All of us, if we're going to follow the Lord, are going to suffer. And we will be coming to the subject of suffering. What's it for? Does it make any difference to God's ultimate purpose? And this is probably a question that's in the minds of many of you. Whether a thing is ordained or only allowed, does it make any difference? I believe that the purpose remains the same, which is our sanctification. God is in the business of making us instruments of peace visible, walking, breathing signs of the invisible reality of the presence of Christ in us. So, as far as I'm concerned, it really doesn't make any difference whether God assigned it and allotted it and ordained it, or whether he just allowed it. And here we are in huge theological and philosophical question of the ages, how do you reconcile a sovereign God with the freedom of man to choose? And my second husband was a theologian and a philosopher, and he used to say to his theology students, who always raised this question as though nobody had ever thought of it before, uh, you drive in a stake over here in the sovereignty of God. There is absolutely no question about that. You drive in another stake over here, on, uh, which is the freedom of man's will to choose. There is no question about that. Are you going to get these two stakes together so that they are intellectually satisfying? No. Forget it. You're not going to ha- it's not going to happen. And no philosopher or theologian is ever going to be able to sort that out for you. So we just leave it with God. It doesn't make any difference whether he allowed it or just permitted it. And another very um, clear text on this is uh, 2 Corinthians 12, where the story tells us about Paul's thorn in the flesh. It's very interesting to me that it says he was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming absurdly conceited. You remember that he had had a very strange and wonderful spiritual experience, so strange and wonderful that when he started to tell about it, he puts it in the third person. And then he sort of forgets himself and he lets you know that it really was the man that he's talking about, really was himself. And if we long for strange and wonderful spiritual experiences, it's probably mainly so that we can talk about them and tell other people how wonderful they were so that people will know how spiritual we really are. Well, in order to keep Paul from getting absurdly conceited about that, he was given a thorn in the flesh. Now, who would have given him a thorn in the flesh? Who does not want him to become absurdly conceited? Satan would be tickled to death if he's absurdly conceited. But it says it was a messenger of Satan. Can you sort that one out? The purpose was God's. The act was Satan's. God doesn't give people thorns in the flesh, but God certainly allowed Satan to put the thorn in the flesh because it was God's purpose to give that he get that thorn in one way or another. God did not inspire 
the Alka Indians to spear five men to death, but it was God's purpose that those men be killed in that way in order for his holy and mysterious and eternal purposes should be worked out. No evil is intolerable except a guilty conscience. That's a quotation from William Ellery Channing. No evil is intolerable except a guilty conscience. We think when we imagine, when our fears take hold of us about what might happen in the future, we think that we would never be able to bear it. But it's very interesting that we are always able to bear the things which actually do happen. But we can never bear what happened to other people. We look at someone else's sufferings and we think, oh, I could never go through that. Well, of course, you're not required to. I couldn't tell you how many times people have said to me, oh, I could never go through what you went through. And I said, well, you weren't asked to. And I don't know what you've been through, but I couldn't go through that myself. God gives the grace. And you have in your hymns collection here, he giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the trials increase, when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. No evil is intolerable except a guilty conscience. And we do not need to walk around with a guilty conscience because there is the blood of Jesus. Again, the sacramental understanding of life helps us to accept humbly God's grace through the medium of things and happenings. The sacramental understanding of life helps us to accept humbly God's grace through the medium of things and happenings. God coming into our souls by means of the humblest accidents the intermingling of spirit and sense, says Evelyn Underhill. God coming into our souls by means of the humblest accidents, the intermingling of spirit and sense. And I should tell you that she is the one who has most uh, clearly delineated for me what this sacramental view of life is. And she's she's very, very down to earth in so many ways. And I do believe that Many of her books would still be in print. I haven't tried to get any lately, but Evelyn Underhill is the name. Now, when I think of the so-called things and happenings and accidents of my life, I think of the fact that I was brought up in the Great Depression, which to this day has shaped my thinking. We were talking to someone the other day who was also brought up in the Great Depression, and we were talking about what a totally different mindset we have than those who were not born that early. Um, I still am extremely economical and fussy about waste of any kind. Um, my grandmother used to say, it's plenty good, it's plenty good enough. That was her phrases. You know, you don't need to buy anything new. This, whatever it is, you can fix it, you can do something with it. It's plenty good enough. And I confess that there have been times when I have actually dried lettuce on a paper towel and hung the paper towel back on the roll because it's not dirty, it's just wet. And I use it over again, now can you imagine? I had very few friends. I lived in a neighborhood of one other girl and 42 boys. And I had, uh, I had two brothers at that time. I now have four. 
But I was lonely. I was shy. My one and only good friend, Essie, who didn't live very near, we walked to school together sometimes because she, we would meet halfway there. And Essie was my, by far my best friend, and she died when we were both nine years old. Um, I had a lot of illness. I've had practically none since, but up until I was about nine years old, I was, I missed a lot of school. Um, I was, I was born convicted, convinced that I would fail in everything. I would get on a trolley car or a subway and be absolutely sure that I was the only person on the trolley car that had no idea where I was going. Everybody else knew exactly where they were going when they were going to get off. And I guess my brother Tom is kind of the same way. He said, when I dial a prayer, they hang up on me. Um, (laughs) Anyway... I was too tall when I was eight years. When I was in the eighth grade, I was as tall as I am today. So you feel very silly when all the boys are about up to here, and you're the one that has to erase the top of the blackboard and stand at the back of the room and all this. Then when we moved from Philadelphia to New Jersey, it was between the fourth and fifth grade. When I got to New Jersey, I found out that all the kids there had learned to play softball in the fourth grade. We didn't learn to play softball in the fourth grade in Philadelphia, so guess who was always the last one uh, chosen for a team, and guess who struck out every time? That's the story of my life. Uh, I got a valentine when I was in the sixth grade, which I will never forget. It said, by Jove, you think you're a real real social queen with your bloomin' old haughty unfriendly demean, but I say, old chap, get off your high horse, get off your high jinks, and come down with the rest of us ginks, or something like that. Those were the days when they gave, they called those comic valentines, and they were just a way of telling the person the worst things that you could think about them. I don't know that they still have those. But I went to a boarding school when I was 14, a boarding school in Florida, and I was there for three years. And I owe to Mrs. DuBose, the headmistress, a tremendous debt of gratitude for many things that she taught me. But at the same time, she tore strips off of me. She just, she excoriated me over and over and over again, correcting me in the most vicious and, uh, to me, extremely hurtful way. She had a way of praising you one day and tearing you to pieces the next day. But she forced me to write, to play the piano, to sing, and to speak in public. I look back and I think I was led by grace. And every single one of these little things that I've mentioned, it's not as though I was brooding over them then. I just look back at them from this perspective and I see that God had his purpose in every single one of these. And another one of the great debts that I owe to Mrs. DeBose is that she was the one that introduced me to Amy Carmichael. She used to quote Amy Carmichael in her evening Vesper talks, and I was completely hooked at that time and asked if I could borrow her books. I was 14 when I began reading. But I think of the blessing of having parents who were loving and self-disciplined and godly and had extremely high expectations for their children, and as I observed with living with Indians, children generally live up pretty much to your expectations. If you expect them to be losers, they will be. 
my parents, I think, had a realistic view of of what our capacities were, and they expected us to make use of the gifts that God had given us. We lived in a play, in a home which was orderly and peaceful and quiet, generally speaking. Now, I don't mean we were suppressed. There were times when there was tremendous hilarity. That was one of the features of our lives. We laughed our heads off and... Tom and I often talk about the fact that we really don't know very many people who laugh so hard that they cry, which Tom and I do. I mean, the tears pour down our faces with laughter. And when we get together, the six of us, we spend an awful lot of time singing hymns and an awful lot of time laughing. But that's the kind of home we came from. And a great deal was taken for granted. Well, I'm not going to go through the rest of the story of my life, but as I look at these events, which I enjoyed writing down with the hope that I could fit them all in, uh, I realized the marvelous sovereignty of God and the ways in which he engineers the most unlikely things to bring about his holy purposes. In 1 Peter 1, 1 1-5, we have the story of... uh, We have Peter writing to exiles and... The, ex, the exile did not in any way interfere with God's plan. I think we need to be reminded of this over and over again. When Paul and Peter were imprisoned, did that prevent them from doing the will of God? No. It certainly prevented them from doing what they thought they were supposed to do, what they were expecting to do. They were shut up. But that didn't prevent them from doing the will of God. God will never allow anything to happen to you which is going to prevent you from doing the will of God. Nothing can prevent that. Absolutely nothing. So here in 1 Peter 1, 1 to 5, he's writing to God's elect. They're still God's elect, although they are in exile. They're strangers in the world, scattered throughout all these different places but chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for what? For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. And he goes on in verse 3, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is just pouring out encouragement and and reiteration of what God has done for these people, even though they are exiles, which must be a horrible experience, and into an inheritance that can never perish. They would have probably lost everything materially. Never perish, spoil, or fade. That's what you have to look forward to. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. Why wouldn't God's power have shielded them from going into exile? Well, for this very reason, so that they can begin to appreciate that inheritance undefiled, which which can never perish or spoil, shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The plan of God is a dynamic unfolding of a design which includes all our circumstances, conditions, heredity, and environment. The time in which we live, the things beyond our control, and our own decisions. Every willed choice 
He knows how to make even the wrath of man to praise him. Lars had a little bit of space left on the tape, and he asked me if I would repeat the Amy Carmichael prayer because he didn't get that on when I said it here, so I'm just going to give it to you again. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master must the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has nor wound nor scar? I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today and will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.